mental health startups raised $5.5 billion in 2021. So the question is, what happens when our mental health is for sale? I'm Megan Cornish, and this is Hot Commodity, the collision of mental health and tech. Quick ad disclaimer, I don't have any control over who advertises in my ad spots, but I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. As a marketer in the mental health space, I've heard good, bad, and ugly ads. If a mental health company pops up in these spaces, please look deeper at that company and use the lens that we discuss in this show, and feel free to reach out and let me know what you find. You're listening to Episode 1, Crash Course. Before we get started, I should probably introduce myself. I'm a licensed clinical social worker from the Pacific Northwest. I had my social work dream job at a school district working with teenagers and summers off. I also had a side hustle in writing and communications to support the vacation fund. That is, until COVID worked, it's life rearranging magic on my life. My partner and I moved cross-country to Greenville, North Carolina with our six-month-old and our three-year-old in tow, and we found there were no social work dream jobs in my new area, especially ones that would both pay for childcare and help me subsidize my husband's doctoral degree. So we made the decision that I would go all in on my writing side hustle while leaning on student loans and savings to keep the lights on. But it wasn't long before my part-time side hustle became a full-time freelancer gig when word got out in the mental health tech field that I knew marketing and mental health. It was like two separate countries speaking two separate languages suddenly merged and I was bilingual. It was still a wild ride though. I hopped from call to call with startup founders and they each had their vision of how to revolutionize mental health care. And there was a whole set of acronyms I had never heard before. MVP. GTM, FMA, WTS. For me, Economics 101 was a long time ago, and I didn't pay that much attention anyways. What I really needed was someone with a degree in this stuff to explain it to me. Luckily, I had one in the family. How you doing? Good, how are you? Not bad. Jay Larson is my partner's cousin. He graduated from Duke University with a degree in economics, and he's not the founder of a tech-related startup. Jay is a brilliant human who I deeply respect and with whom I disagree profoundly on many topics, which always makes for really interesting family gatherings. My professional background lately in the last 10, 15 years has been a mix of education and technology with a focus on innovation. I studied economics at Duke with a focus on history of money and history of markets. And so... I'm very interested in how do large-scale groups of people coordinate to create better things for the world and to provide services for each other. Jay has been teaching me via text message the past few months because I'm trying to educate myself on all the finer details of what I've gotten myself into. He's answered questions like, should I work for equity in lieu of pay? And isn't the stock market just basically gambling for rich people? I spend half of my time talking to clinicians for companies, interviewing them. And then other half of my time is talking with the business side and they are not getting each other at all. It's super siloed because it, I mean, the pandemic just made them shoved together in weird ways. Yep. And so there's an attitude among business people towards clinicians that they're just being sticks in the mud about, you know, their rules that they have, but they have rules for a reason because it's ethics and you're working with people's mental health and and then on the clinician side, there's this eye roll attitude about, oh, they're just here because there's money to be made. We're in it for the right reasons and they're in it for the wrong reasons. And there are a lot of companies that are doing sketchy things like selling private information and the fine print that really upsets clinicians. But 
the whole vibe in the industry right now is really everyone's very offended by the other half so just the goal of the podcast i'm just going to be talking to people on both sides trying to bring them together a little bit i'm going to try not to offend either side or at least try and offend them the same amount now we don't assume that everyone listening is as clueless as i was a year ago so bear with me like jay did as i made him define what i'm sure is for most people common sense there is a method to my madness The more I learned about the startup world, the more empowered I was to take part in the conversation, to ask important questions and make informed decisions. My mission is to make sure that every single clinician is empowered to do the same. So we'll start with the basics. Can you define a startup? A startup is a business designed for fast growth. It's often called a company looking for a sustainable and repeatable business model. So it's generally identified some problem in the world and has figured out an idea for how to solve that problem and make money while doing so. What is bootstrapped? To bootstrap means to grow the business without taking on a lot of investment or sometimes not taking on any investment and entirely doing it through revenue. So often people will bootstrap a company while they keep their other job until the company is generating enough profit for them to quit their job and do that full-time. What's an angel investor? An angel investor. An angel investor is often the first money in. If you're in a place that's got a lot of investment, often it'll come after the after family and friends or at the same time. And they'll put in a check when you just have an idea and a passionate team and maybe some of the product built, but you don't have to have a ton of traction or a ton of revenue. And angels are often, very often former entrepreneurs or former tech employees themselves. And it's usually their own money. What about a venture capital fund? A venture capital fund is a pool of money that's managed by general partners. And those general partners take money from limited partners which can be anything from a university endowment to a pension fund. For legal reasons that I don't understand, they're usually nonprofits that invest in these venture capital funds. And it's a type of capital that came up in the US in the middle part of the 20th century to basically take bets that are most likely going to fail, but to take enough of them that the ones that succeed make up for all the ones that fail. Jay also explained about private equity funds. Private equity funds? Private means that it's not traded publicly, so they don't have the same reporting requirements. Equity means they're trying to buy ownership of the company so that if the company does well, they do well. And if the company does badly, they do badly. That is generally going to be later stage than venture capital. Mm -hmm. So a venture venture capital-backed company could go public and then investors get their money back. It could sell to a bigger company like Microsoft and then investors get their money back. Or it could sell to private equity and then the investors get their money back. So question for you, when you see Exo Mental Health Company has raised a hundred million in funding, where does the money go? That money is going to paying software developers, paying designers, paying product people, Presumably in this kind of industry, paying a lot of lawyers, because when you have a highly regulated, highly complicated industry that involves crazy insurance rules and, you know, there's a lot of obviously lawyers involved in in creating laws. As companies grow, they tend to raise a bunch of venture capital money mm-hmm. and then spend a bunch of that money on ads. This marketing component is apparently crucial to what mental health startups are trying to accomplish. 
Uh, the historical model, which is, seems to be changing now, is that your unit economics, which is how your overall costs per transaction work, weren't as important as growing your users, right? Like Facebook didn't have a business model at the beginning, but investors were willing to throw money at them because they said, once you get all these users, once you get all this market share, you're going to figure out a business model. When you get to internet companies, the game changes because engineers are expensive, designers are expensive, product people are expensive. So to build that app takes a lot of time and a lot of money up front. Once it's built though, you can effectively serve one person, you know, Cost of serving one person would be the whole cost of the app, but that price stays the same as you add a second person to the app, third person mm -hmm. to the app. So eventually you get to a million, 5 million, 10 million people, and you're not adding much cost. The idea is that you build a mental health app, you're connecting clients and clinicians, you maybe a lot of them have a certain spin, something they do better than the others, and you approach an investor and say, we have this, we're not profitable yet, but if you give us the money to do the marketing and get a bunch of users on here, then we will become profitable at X amount of users. Yes. One of the hardest parts of these conversations for me was understanding the link between investments, equity, and revenue. When investors give money to the companies, do the companies have to pay it back? Where does the value in equity come from? And is there even a firm link between the money someone makes and the value that investors get from it? There are a lot of complex answers to those questions, but here's basically what you need to know. And Jay is not a fan of this analogy, but investing is kind of like betting on horses. They're not loans to be paid back. Investors are taking part in a system that creates wealth by trying to predict which companies will do well and which ones won't. Of course, when you bet on a horse, you don't impact the outcome of the race. So the analogy breaks down there. But investors who make bad bets will lose their money, but those who make good bets are paid out by other investors. Basically, those who want to buy the stocks from them or otherwise want to invest in the company. So if you see in the news that millions are being invested, those investors are betting on the future of the company. They're concerned about success. Sure, they'll care about quality and client care, but only as far as it impacts the company's ability to continue to grow. So investors are helping enable innovation in the mental health field, but they're not in the mental health business. They're still just investors. Because Jay and I can never resist a friendly debate, a lot of our conversations circle the topics of money, wealth, and capitalism. The modern, you know, capitalist economy, if you want to call it capitalist, I know that world that word's got a negative bent to it, but a world in which you can take an enterprise, a concept of a bunch of people coming together for a purpose, and turn that into stocks, which is a type of financial capital. That allows you to count to some degree, what the company's done for the world and what investors in the company have done proportional to their investment and to make sure that there's a reason for that company to do a bunch of things for the world, even if they're not getting paid right away, because they'll be able to capitalize on that later. You said that, you know, money is our way of, of determining who has contributed what, but I think that's part of the tension right now in the mental health industry. Um, these CEOs raising all this money. And, you know, I don't know how much of that that they are taking home. Some of them are profitable already. Some of them are not. But the the clinicians are sure not the ones taking it home. And I think that is the source of a lot of the, the tension right now. The idea that these CEOs and owners who don't even have licenses, who haven't been doing the work of mental health are making so much money off of this industry. Basically, what, what these platforms do is they, they remove friction. So they remove what is called in the technical term, transaction costs. How do you identify someone? 
So how do you triangulate them? How do you decide to trust them? And that goes two ways. How does the, you know, in an Uber, an Uber example, how does the rider decide it's trustworthy to jump in the stranger's car? And from the person whose car it is, how do they decide it's trustworthy to allow some random person on the side of the street to jump in with them and tell them how to go? And then how does the transaction actually happen? How does money move from A to B? And so again, finding people, trusting them, transacting. What these platforms do is they make some component or all components of that easier, which is removing transaction costs. And that's what the CEOs and the companies are selling. They're selling an easier time for finding clients, an easier time for agreeing to get them to become a client, and an easier time for accepting and receiving payment. Like the therapists spend less time following up on bills. They maybe don't have to have their own internal accounts receivable or accounts payable. And in theory, the platforms are making that all a lot easier. That Uber analogy is absolutely perfect. Uber is a transportation company, but it doesn't provide transportation. It just functions as a connector between people who need transportation and people who provide it. The market is full of companies that say they're mental health companies. In a sense, they are. But in another sense, they're not the ones providing mental health services. Clinicians are. So. Yeah, mental health startups have created amazing new possibilities for healing and growth. I mean, rural communities are getting therapy. Apps are facilitating between sessions CBT. Measurement-based care is creating new ways to monitor therapy progress. But the CEOs, the founders, the tech and sales teams, they're not the experts. They're the administrators. When I go to the hospital, I'm happy the hospital administrators have facilitated the care I'm getting, but I don't want to see a CEO walking into the operating room and telling my surgeon how to cut. People who have mental illnesses are vulnerable, and vulnerable people need extra protection, especially from those with more power than them who can take advantage. In my mind, that means we need a bigger fish, like the government, step in and make sure there's no exploitation taking place. But Jay and I have very different views on issues like government regulation. A pretty broadly held theory in the tech startup space is that things move quickly and innovate quickly and tend to be disruptive for a while, but then it provides better better value for everyone involved, except for areas that are very heavily regulated. So areas like law, medicine, these have all gotten these convoluted regulations that were put in place with good intentions, often by people who don't see the second order effects. They just look at the narrow thing that they're focusing on. And that, that, and because they're created with regulations and these heavy rules that are created from top down, as the world changes, the rules often don't get updated. Whereas rules that come up more informally, people can renegotiate and kind of change more, more quickly. For my part, I have a hard time imagining how regulation could be worse than exploitation, at least for vulnerable consumers. I can see why CEOs would take that gamble. They have less to lose than consumers and a lot more to gain. Despite our differences, though, there's a reason Jay's my go-to guy for questions about money and markets. His current startup in the tech space is actually his second big venture. Before this, he co-founded a nonprofit in Kenya with his brother that brings tech skills to students, growing their earning power exponentially. So Tunapond is a nonprofit social enterprise, and our goal is to get young people, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds, to be productive people who have control over the own story of their life. And so we do this by running training programs focused on things like digital literacy, professional skills, interpersonal skills. 
and then explorations into computer programming, web design, digital media, and graphic design. And from there, you've got the core professional skills. You understand what's possible. We do it in project-based context that very much mirrors the world of work. It's not like school where you're memorizing stuff. By the end of it, you have a better sense of who you are. You have a better sense of the career possibilities. You've tasted a bit of coding, a bit of design, a bit of digital storytelling, and you have some idea of where you want to take your career. So right now we're really focused on helping those young people as they go through, not just understand what they want to do, but set clear goals. And that's why there's no way I could ever say Jay cares any less about the world or about people than I do. We just have different perspectives on how to go about it. Now, don't get me wrong. I still have a healthy skepticism of the free market and of humans in general. You'd never hear me say mental health shouldn't be regulated. Money's power and power corrupts. Whenever there's one person with a lot of power in a position to take advantage of someone else who's vulnerable, like, for example, a person with severe depression, there should be someone standing in the middle holding a whistle. But the tensions brewing in the mental health space right now, the clinician outcries, news headlines, the proliferation of companies, they're all signs that the system's working. It's a large-scale version of the scientific method. You try something, you refine, and you try it again. Companies are trying, clinicians are giving critical feedback. The best companies will listen, refine, and try again. And clinicians, guess what? You're the one standing in the middle with a whistle. You're in demand. Without you, none of this happens. Uber doesn't work without drivers, and mental health startups don't work without clinicians. So how do we make sure we're blowing the whistle when we need to? We vote with our labor. Ask in interviews. What are your profits? How do you get the profits? What percentage of my rates do you take? How much of that goes to senior leadership, and how much of it do you share with the therapist? Is there a clinician in the C-suite? Can you give me an example of a decision that you made that risked a negative impact on revenue, but it made sense to improve the client and clinician experience? And if you don't like the answers, take your value generation potential to another company, or better yet, start your own practice. If companies start to think care quality and delivery is just another business negotiable up for boardroom debate, that's when ethics go out the door. That's when clinicians should consider walking. If clinicians walk, if media blows the whistle, company value goes down. That's what gets CEOs and investors' attention, and it's how we make it unprofitable to cut corners. I'm not saying that every CEO is unethical. Far from it. There are a lot of CEOs with strong moral compasses, but they're in a system that incentivizes them to cut corners if they can get away with it. A system like that needs bright lights shown in all the closets to keep everything above board. On this podcast, you can expect to hear a lot of voices. They won't all agree with each other, and you won't agree with all of them. But as any therapist knows, communication has power. Listening and talking and disagreeing and compromising, they're the ways we solve problems. Next episode, I'll bring on a voice that's keeping the system working by making sure we have accurate, timely information about the goings-on in the mental health tech world. Chris Larson, reporter from Behavioral News, is going to come and chat with me about what he thinks therapists need to know to stay savvy in the quickly changing industry. As an ending caveat, because I will always call for transparency in this podcast, I figured I should probably show some myself. I don't get paid for this podcast, though I might if enough of you listen because of ads. I work with a handful of mental health companies like Alma and Blueprint on a freelance basis, but the entire podcast is thought up, recorded, and edited by me, myself, and I. The podcast serves me in the sense that it lets me talk about my passions in a format that might lead to freelance opportunities, and it's also super fun. I'm going to try and balance integrity with paying the bills. So if I'm ever making money from anything related to the show, other than the ads, you can rest assured you'll hear about it. And if any other potential conflicts of interest come up, I promise to let you know.